You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire. One hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Joe Tokuingua, no mai hairi mai ki te wire mō tēnei rā. Kia ora and welcome to the wire for Rāmere Friday, the 17th of February. I'm your host, Joe, and I'll be with you for the next hour. I'm accompanied in the studio by my producer, Daniel. Daniel, how are we doing? Good. All good. We've got a stacked show as per usual for you guys. Um, unfortunately, there will be no city councilling today. Uh, David is away. Um, and yeah, so no city councilling today. But nonetheless, on the show this week, we'll be looking into the Murawai landslides and how the landscape that the houses were built on was eroded by a landslide. Uh, in 1965, I spoke to Associate Professor Martin Brook from the University of Auckland on this matter. Um, I also spoke to Claire Breen, a Professor of Law at the University of Waikato, about the latest report into the rights of children in Aotearoa from the UN. Daniel will be diving into the psychology and history of social panics uh, surrounding UFOs. He also speaks to Anthony Milligan from King's College London about love and soulmates. On that note of love, finally, I speak to Rebecca Dunlop from the University of Queensland about humpback whales switching from singing to fighting to win over the ladies. We have a great show for you guys today, so keep it on the beat for the next hour. Here aha ofakaro. We'd love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces, by the way. So to keep part to we my, you can text us in the studio on 5395. Why my will give us a call in studio on 0930938793879. Also remember you can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95 BFM website after the show. Now into the wire. What I'm Friday. Geology experts say that sand and soils in Cyclone Gabriel battered Murawai were probably weakened by two huge landslides in the area in 1965. Two firefighters lost their lives uh, when they were called to the house uh, to a house that was brought down by the landslide on Monday night. This is not the first time uh, this has happened on Auckland's west coast. Um, a mother and her teenage daughter died and two houses were destroyed during two huge landslides out at Muir in 1965, following two days of heavy rain. Now, I spoke to Associate Professor Martin Brook from the University of Auckland on this matter. For the 1965 landslide, I mean, that, that, was, uh, that formed in very weak sands um, just below Awaia Road. Um, and they became saturated because the underlying older, harder bedrock was less permeable. So after a lot of rain um, in, mid, in late August 1965, those sands became saturated, and um, they flowed downslope very rapidly, um, down uh, northwestwards downslope towards the main crescent, crossed the main crescent, um, and terminated um, about 50 metres by Domain Crescent. So, so those those landslides in 1965 were about 250 metres long in total. And an eyewitness said that some of the material flowed at about 90 kilometres an hour. So very rapid, very mobile. And that is what you'd expect with um, unconsolidated sands when they become saturated, because it's a bit like building a sandcastle on the beach. Um, if you add 
a bit of water to the sand, it actually has a suction effect and you can build a very stable sandcastle. But if you saturate the sand, your sandcastle rapidly falls apart and flows out at a very low angle. <clears throat> and that, that's similar to what happened at Murawai in 1965, by all accounts, and by you know looking at the work Laurie Wright wrote, wrote on it at the time. So, so you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of that material in the Murawai area, and in, in fact, but these Kaihu sands um, all along the west coast at various points. Is this an example that science and erosion and really just the lay of the land needs to be taken into account when building homes? Yeah, it, well, it's important, but there's a multitude of legacy policy and planning um, acts and regulations that come into play. And I mean, we had the in the, the, the Town Country Planning Act in 1977 was important, but um, in 1981, um, the local um, government act was amended um, in 1981, and that. Um, you know that that was important because 1981 because what it did was it allowed local authorities to issue building permits where land is subject to slips and failure um but the local authority wouldn't be under any civil liability so that was in 1981 um now since then obviously we had the resource management act in um 91 um we've had the building acts and the building act again in 2004 so things have been tightened up a lot, but I th you know from that 1981 that was a problem, um, and th this this sort of event was, I mean it's been discussed. There was a really good paper written in 1986 by a couple of practicing engineers, and they remarked that that local government amendment act in 1981 was was going to lead to problems because it, it essentially meant that the private sector was going to have to police itself. Um, I guess a bit, a bit like the leaky homes, uh, where that was kind of deregulated in the 80s as well, or 90s, and there's a sort of a legacy problem there. Um, and I guess there's potentially a legacy problem with some land development in the 1980s um, before the RMA and the Building Acts came into force. Um, but, you know, obviously that... So, so central government legislation is really important, um, and councils can only sort of act on, on that and develop their their policies and plans on that. But certainly the Local Government Amendment, Amendment Act, sorry, um, 1981, Section 641, um, is really important, I think, in, in, in a lot of New Zealand. You know, not, not just Murawai, but a lot of New Zealand. What does this mean for unitary plans in the future? There is a likelihood that we will see this again in the future. Well, it needs to be more resilient. And, um, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's people at the council working on that. And, I mean... You know, last year, certainly coastal hazards and landslips around coasts, you know, the council are certainly getting stuck into that. Um, you know, the 2022 proposed plan change, 78 for Auckland, limits development within the coastal within coastal hazard areas. So the council's certainly trying to get to grips with it, without a doubt. But um, obviously there's a lot of legacy decisions from pre-council um, amalgamation. Um, obviously Murawai is, was in the Rodney district, yeah, Rodney. Um, so that there's probably there's a lot of, a myriad of legacy effects here um, that need to be kind of dealt with. And you know, I just saw Chris Hipkins on the news, and he, you know, he he was talking about infrastructure, but he said, you know, we need to get real. Um, and I think you could, you know, apply that not just to civil infrastructure, uh, roads and rail and all the rest of it. But you could apply it to residential subdivisions as well.
Is there anything else that you feel like the listeners should know? No, I just say, you know, what happened in Marawai, I know everyone else is an absolute tragedy. That was Associate Professor Martin Brook from the University of Auckland speaking about how sands and soils uh, out at Middlewai following Cyclone Gabriel were probably weakened during two, uh, two landslides prior um, in 1965. Why should New Zealanders care so much about this? Because your children will curse you if you don't. The Wire. Going to pass it over to Daniel now. Are social panic balloons and UFOs, USA has been shooting them down quite a bit often. <laughs> True, yeah. I spoke with Robert Bartholomew. He is a sociologist specialized in social panics, and he predicted already after the first shooting down of a Chinese spy balloon, there will be a wave of UFO sightings in the US. And we spoke about the history and psychology of such UFO scares and outbreaks of UFO sightings. What's the old saying? Speak of the devil, and he is bound to appear. And that's what you're seeing here. Um, now people are scrutinizing the skies for evidence of balloons, and they're seeing them. And I have predicted that um, after the first shoot-down of the first balloon, I predicted in my Psychology Today column that you'd see a wave of these things, and that's exactly what's happened, and it's going to even pick up more. Oh, why did you predict that? Why did you think Well, that? because there's a long history of uh, balloon... Um, and aircraft scares or people see unidentified flying objects and it's always the same pattern there is an initial sensational report in the media or social media and then people start scrutinizing the skies for evidence of this object and ordinarily you don't stare at the nighttime sky or the daytime sky and um, this is a recipe for seeing things that aren't there like, there will be a rash of sightings now where people at night misperceive lights in the sky, lights in the night, for Chinese spy balloons and other spy balloons um, because of the autokinetic effect. If you start staring at stars for a few minutes, it'll appear to move. Uh, and you also get a scintillation effect where it can uh, change colors. But ordinarily, you don't see that because you don't stare that long at it. But now, because of the news reports, people are now staring long periods at the sky, looking for evidence of some type of nefarious foreign object put up there by the Chinese or other governments, and you'll start seeing it. And the same thing, look, if, if somebody said that there is a monster in Lake Wanaka on the South Island, People start staring at the lake and start seeing things that um, have always been there and redefining them in light of the new label. And that's what these scares do. They get people to start over-scrutinizing their environment for evidence of this nefarious object, and then you start seeing it. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. What's the mm. old Shakespeare saying? Or in the night, imagining some fear. How easy is a bush, supposed a bear? Also, it made me think about the book the psychiatrist Jung wrote, Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. Yep. He also said it's not about the reality or unreality of those UFOs. It's not whether they're real or imagined. It's a kind of modern myth. 
Do you agree with that? Sure. Perceptual psychology is very fallible and subject to error. The human mind does not take in information like a video cassette recorder. It interprets information. So people are very prone to misperceiving objects in their environment. What's the psychology of that? Is it like how also conspiracy theories work, that we see patterns that are not there? Um, is it more anxiety or a combination of that? Well, look, human beings are renowned for seeing things that aren't there, hearing things that aren't there, and believing in things that never were. Um, it's because humans are meaning-oriented creatures. We seek meaning where there is none. Hence, the face on Mars, which wasn't a face. Or Maria Rubio, who in 1977 in Port Arthur, New Mexico, was cooking a tortilla on a skillet and thought she saw the face of Jesus. And then tens of thousands of people flock to her home every year for decades to see the miracle tortilla. So there's a tendency to see things that uh, we, we expect to see. Now, there are objects out there, and there are balloons out there, but uh, what I predict is there'll be a lot of nighttime sightings, and they'll assume that these balloons have lights on them when actually people will be seeing stars and planets. In New Zealand, in 1909, there was the Zeppelin scare. There were thousands of sightings of German Zeppelins over New Zealand. And it happened after there was a rumor that Germany was going to attack a vulnerable British outpost first, namely New Zealand, and people started redefining aerial astronomical objects as being Zeppelins. Um, about 88%, I think, at the time of known astronomical objects correlated with the sightings. Mm, yeah. And there's a parallel there because it was the fear of the Germans. Now it's the fear of the Chinese. I think the UFO sightings occur often in the United States. So what does that say about the United States society? Well, it's a barometer. It's a reflection. It's a Rorschach inkblot test of what's going on at any given time. And people look up in the ambiguous sky and they see what they expect to see and what they want to see. And that's why I predict that this would trigger a wave of sightings that aren't even balloons. They'll just be clouds or just a variety of phenomena, particularly astronomical phenomena, uh, within a new frame of reference. And that frame of reference is created by media and fears of conflict with China? Yeah, fear, xenophobia, the fear of the enemy at the gate, right? There's always some group that society fears, right? And the 1950s, it was homosexuals, it was communists. In the 1960s, it was the hippies, right? Um, and the early 2000s, it was Muslims. There's always some nefarious figure out there to fear. And right now, it's the Chinese and the Russians. You know, you've had flying saucer waves in the past. Um, there have been balloon scares in the past and excitements where people claim to see balloons that couldn't have been there, and it was beyond the technology of the period. Um, and UFOs as well, and flying saucers like in 1947. You know, when things change, they also stay the same. I mean, um, it's been said that history repeats itself. 
That's not true. History never repeats itself, but it rhymes. And what we're seeing with the balloon scare here is the rhyming of history. That was Robert Bartholomew, medical sociologist, writer and journalist, and human rights advocate. And he's well known for his books on social panics. You're on the wire for Ramadi Friday. Remember, you can text us in 5395 or give us a call on 0930938790. That's 5395 if you wish to text in 0930938790 if you wish to give us a call. Let us know what you think of all the pieces you've heard so far. We'll be right back after a short break. The government has indicated a progressive. Oh, wow. The wire. What's a seven letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club there's DJs Hudge and Martina Mack. And tomorrow, Fiona dos Samba dos Amigos, followed by DJ Victor Cabrera. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Calling all units, it's Motat's hottest live day of the year fire and emergency. Discover the heroic history of New Zealand firefighters with Motat's emergency collection of firefighting equipment. See the New Zealand police dogs in action. Get educated on what to do in an emergency with Fire and Emergency NZ and the NZ Defence Force and see real-life emergencies at road crash rescue demonstrations. Fire and Emergency Live Day at Motat. Sunday, February 19th, 10am to 4pm. For more info, go to motat.nz. Album of the Year on BBC Six Music, Kay Tempest is the voice of contemporary British alternative music. Salt coast, foul wind, old ghosts, scrap tin. If you want to catch the rapper, poet, performer, polymath and general genius live at the power station, then grab your beer card and stay tuned to 95BFM Drive. 95BFM presents Kay Tempest plus special guest Polly Hill Friday, February 24th at the Power Station. Get your tickets now from Ticketmaster. More pressure, more release, your eyes, your cheeks, your features crease. Two for the hustle and one for the nighttime spread over the city like a comforter. Prime time for the predators who come to hunt for the chunks. Carrying them high notes like a trumpeter. They shoot as straight as arrows and run through the shadows as sons of a gun or dirty young cavalaros with marks on their collars where they hung from the gallows. Their lust for the dollars keep them red like the tarot's making fiends, influencing people. Dale Carnegie's with big dreams to get rich quick that fail horribly now they play the avenue of amsterdam with other pickpockets and thieves and gambling men and they just come at all the noodles where resistance is futile business is usual to blow out your wig like french poodles never ending pursuit of the american dream when it takes everything is still a regular thing listen One 
for the will of man, two for the kilogram, three for the cold killer who could still be a millionaire, filling the frigid there, big plates and silverware, where everybody eat except the one who was ill prepared, through the circumstances, there's no more chances, we was raised by wolves, grizzly bears and panthers, it's wild, yo I'm surprised we ain't grow no antlers, the whole house is fucked, like Jojo dances, it's hopeless, to drift into a deep psychosis, do the most for just another bleak prognosis, out of respect for the dead, the names is changed, when booby pop lit in his wig, his aim was flames, if one thing them young boys not playing his games, now that a teacher old timer how to stay in his lane, I guess the moral of the story is, any sip you pour me is a toast, to the warriors who bit the dust before me kid, be grateful. Welcome back to The Wire for Ramede Friday. The UN Committee on the Rights of the Child recently published its sixth review into how Aotearoa New Zealand is implementing the obligations under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child 1989. Now, I spoke to Claire Breen, a professor of law at the University of Waikato, on this matter, and I started off by asking her how this has painted a mixed picture of how Aotearoa treats young people. Here she is now. Well, it's a, um, a bit of a mixed um, picture because, I guess in terms of process, the, the Committee on the Rights of the Child does like to acknowledge um, the progress that a country like Aotearoa New Zealand um, has made um, in um, I guess in the period since the last report, so it's sort of an ongoing process. So there, there is, you know, always a bit of um, positive news. Um, but then I think uh, it's more mixed because the the committee is in receipt of um, information about how things haven't improved and maybe um, in some situations things have got worse. Um, and so then they they like to sort of. Um, uh, comment on those things, but also then, I suppose, make recommendations about what um, a country like um, Aotearoa New Zealand can do to improve the situation of children. The good news is is that Aotearoa has made progress in these seven years since the last review, but mm. despite decades of warnings, the country is still failing too many of its children and young people, mm. particularly those in state care living in poverty, with disabilities and those who end up in the justice system. Could you tell me a bit about this? Well, the committee looks at the situation of children generally within the country, but then there will be um, uh, children in particularly vulnerable situations. So it's like children with disabilities or those in state care and those living in poverty. Um, And the committee is often quite rightly concerned with um, these children and uh, their, their lived experiences and their rights, because it's these children whose rights are probably more often being breached um, and more needs to be done um, by uh, the government and, and I guess the country more generally uh, to try and um, improve the situation of these children and try to ensure that their, their rights are given effect and implemented. 
so it's it's children in general, and then uh, I guess uh, 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 children in specific groups that are of particular concern. Now, there's also some other key concerns that do require urgent attention. I'm mm. reading here that things like the persistent discrimination against children mm. in vulnerable yeah. situations, um, persistent rates of abuse, neglect, and violence against children, as well as well as the rights of sh- uh, children in state care. Yeah, I, I think um, these seem to be recurrent themes in, in, in to a certain degree. So the persistent discrimination, um, I think there's been you know concern for a number of reports or review cycles over children in the justice um, system and children living in poverty. So uh, these issues come to the committee's attention on a regular uh, basis. Um, And uh, I think it's important for the committee to to maybe acknowledge or remind um, a country like New Zealand that these are ongoing issues and more needs to be done. Um, and I think with you know some of the legislation that was passed, if we look at children in poverty, and we've got the child po- you know, child poverty reduction legislation. So there has been efforts in some regard, but then also the other part of the question as well: to what to what effect um, has the sort of the legislation delivered? And then if we look at uh, children in the justice system, one of the things that um, the committee. Uh, talked about um, is the minimum age of criminal responsibility and that's just 10 years old Um, and that's been something that the committee has been I guess reminding or encouraging New Zealand or Aotearoa New Zealand to change its legislation for good maybe 15 or 20 years and nothing much seems to be happening in that space so these are sort of regular reminders um, to, to the government about what it needs to do and then when you have, a, I guess, a, a report like this, and uh, if it can be publicised more widely, then you know the general public can see what the committee has had to say and the recurring themes um, and uh, you know the things that need to be done going forward. The UN committee has expressed concern at the persistent overrepresentation of tamariki, rangatahi Māori in all of these areas of mm. key concern. The committee also noted that Pacifica children and LGBTQ plus children, as well as those with disabilities, more likely to be in vulnerable situations. Yeah, again, I guess it goes back to that point that um, there's a situation of uh, children in general in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And then the committee is always mindful of um, particular uh, groups of children who might be in vulnerable situations. And so, um, again, it's sort of a, it's been a, a recurring theme with Tamariki um, and Rangatahi Māori and uh, Pacifica children. Um, and uh, children with disabilities um, have come in for uh, some, I said, more detailed commentary uh, in this review. The, the committee's had a, a bit to say about that. And I think part of what the committee is trying to say is that, you know, um, children generally might find it difficult to have their their rights implemented, but then there might be um, particular children who are members of you know, particular groups in society, and th- then you've got the sort of intersectionality of of uh, discrimination or um, sort of deprivation of we're thinking about children and living in poverty, for example, and so there might be a, you know a couple of things coming together that make it even harder for these children to have their rights implemented and put 
them into you know more difficult, more uh, more vulnerable situations. So that's part of what the committee is getting at there is that that intersection of different um, situations that a child might find itself in in Aotearoa. Now, children can now also report rights violations mm. directly to the UN. Could you tell me a bit about this? So, um, a lot of human rights treaties or UN human rights treaties um, have a mechanism by which uh, individuals can make a complaint to um, a particular human rights committee, like the Committee on the Rights of the Child. Um, and so, uh, the, um, the complaints mechanism from the Children's Rights Committee is comparatively new, um, and, but it's, it's uh, I think, a really welcome move that Aotearoa New Zealand has uh, taken it on board and formally accepted it as a mechanism. So what I guess the way that it would work um, at a very basic level is that a, a young child or a young person um, could try and um, um, make a complaint that uh, their rights uh, were uh, right or particular rights were violated, but they would have to go through, um, I guess, the, the national mechanism, so uh, the national institutional mechanism. And what we're often really thinking about there is the court system that they, they would bring a claim that a, a particular right was violated. Um, and so, what the UN looks for is to make sure that uh, what the language is that all domestic remedies have been exhausted so that the child or the young person and somebody working with them or on their behalf has gone through and tried to get a resolution at a national level before it, uh, it can then hear um, the complaint at the UN level. But it's an interesting mechanism because um, I think it's empowering for children and young people that they can now, uh, you know, um, at least uh, think about making a complaint that there's a further, a further sort of international body that they can make a complaint to about um, uh, rights violations in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So it's quite exciting. What does the government need to do now? Many of these issues are not new. Many of the concerns that we've talked about have already been identified in Aotearoa's last report, which was in 2016, mm. and all of these issues were a matter of, of concern within our country back in 1997 when it was first reported to the committee. Well, I think there's a few things uh, that can be done, and the, the committee pointed out a couple of things like, um, I guess, increasing the, the resourcing um, to support children and the implementation of their rights in New Zealand. Um, and then there is maybe um, taking a sort of a more child-based approach to things like um, the budget. So, you know, um, those, that approach has improved in the last few years, but it's important that that, 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 I, um, that notion of uh, a child's rights-based approach and a child's-based approach to the, the you know, the national budget um, continues. Um, I think a really key theme is that with, you know, the legislation, um, the policies and the programs that relate to children, that it's really important that um, all children um, have the, the opportunity to participate in, in the design of that. So, you know, if we're going to have laws and policies uh, trying to improve the situation of children, well, you know, a, a, a key role or a key aspect of that is talking to the various uh, children themselves to make sure that what they think is important and necessary is actually reflected in the law and the policies and the various programs. Um, and um, I guess uh, another key theme is actually to, to publicise 
the fact that um, this report um, is out. Uh, the committee has made its recommendations. Um, and I think also, I think a wider conversation about uh, the implications for Aotearoa New Zealand having formally accepted the complaints or the communications mechanism. So these are, you know, um, some key things that the government really should be doing. That was Claire Breen, a professor of law at the University of Waikato, speaking about the latest report into the rights of children in Aotearoa from the UN. Their relationships with their girlfriends or their wives, wife. No one, they shouldn't have more than one wife at a time. <laughs> Last Tuesday, we celebrated romantic love. But what is romantic love, actually? I spoke with Anthony Milligan from King's College London about one image of romantic love, the idea of finding a soulmate. Love is obviously a many splendid thing. It's a variety of different things that we cluster together. And it makes sense because they go, they go deep within our, our lives. So when you love someone, you care for them in various ways quite deep ways and their suffering and is is something that, that touches you in, in, in a deep way. But I think above all, uh, when you when you love someone, you cannot help but mourn their loss. So if you want to get a theory of love, somebody that says, well love is X and this is the essential characteristic of it, then uh, that's going to be extremely difficult because we've been working at it for about two and a half thousand years and the results should be coming out fairly soon, but we're not there yet. But, but, but if you ask a simple question such as what are the things that we love, then I think you can answer that. And the answer to it is the things that we love are the things that we whose loss we would mourn. If the loss of something uh, results in, in grief, if it strikes that deeply, to you, then it doesn't really matter whether we disagree about the definitions of love. We know that it's something or someone that you that you love. That was love. It's the kind of care that goes to the heart of who we who we are. And you say also one of the difficult things about working on the philosophy of love is that human relationships change, but our dominant yeah. images of love tend to remain the same. One of these images is the image of the soulmate. If I thought if we talk about soulmates, what do we exactly mean by soulmates? The, the eighteen teens is the earliest instance of it, but the idea has been around for for much longer. It's considered by Plato, but Plato is not that keen on it. But uh, you have the classic version of it, which is in this symposium by Plato, and he gives this wonderful story. Once upon a time, we were wonderful rounded creatures. We all had four arms and four legs and we could roll wherever we liked as fast as we liked. And the gods said, we're not having this. They're having this great time and here we are. So they split us down the middle in order to slow us down, leaving us with a meagre two arms and two legs and and walking about in this awkward way. but whenever we think we see that other half of ourselves that was cut down the middle by the gods, we rush together and try to physically fuse into that complete single whole being again. And that's the that's a great classic image of the of the uh, of the soulmate. That one true other half of yourself, without whom you you will be forever 
incomplete. And once you're fused with that other half, everything will fall into place. Now, it's a very, it's a beautiful image and it's a haunting image. It's one that, yes, I can, we kind of want that and we want the other person to, to be that for us. But it places an enormous burden on ourselves and upon other human beings. So, for example, consider my wife, the lovely woman next door in the next room. It would mean that I'm expecting Suzanne, my wife, to make me whole and complete. And that's never going to happen because I'm a human being. And the nature of human beings, it, it has this incompleteness and imperfection built in. So it, it, it's not, it, it can be misleading as well it's a beautiful image but we don't want to live in a beautiful image we want to live real lives and mm. real lives are, are a little bit more complex and varied than, than those images allow from that quote i also get the feeling is love something that change that is cultural and that's change has a history or is it yeah absolutely the ways in which we care for one another change greatly over the over the course of time and we had a, at a point in time in, in history where we asked questions about how many people can you love and how many people can you love simultaneously and it, someone may expect to, to have several uh, several partners and that's that partly fits with the with some aspects of the soulmate imagery but there are aspects of the soulmate imagery which are about one person, the one true person who's out there for everyone, and when you meet them, it'll be forever. And that's it. That's again, it's difficult to sustain that in the face of a sense of the fragility of uh, of, of of human beings, and in the face of changing patterns of relationships, and in the, the face of changing patterns of family life. But above mm. that. The experience of caring for others in ways that deeply shapes our sense of identity and the, in ways that leave us vulnerable to grief upon their loss, that's something that, that, that's much more stable over time than the particular patterns of relationship or the, uh, the, the, the length of time that one may reasonably expect particular relationships to, to last for. And that does seem to be a fairly general human human need. The uh, the we are social animals. We we need to be with other uh, with other human beings, or at least know that there's the opportunity to to uh, to be with them. And that that goes with 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 being human. When we fall in love, do you sometimes people say, "Are you blinded by love"? Mm, yes. So you project all your your ideals on someone, or is it that we, when we fall in love, look better? We see someone for the who they really are. What do you What do you think? Do we are we blinded or do we see better? There's elements of projection, but I wouldn't push that to the lens that that some people do. For example, Arthur Schopenhauer <laughs> took a very very dim view on love, but and he thought that love was biology's way of tricking us into producing the next generation 
you see someone and you have the these scales before your eyes and you think they're wonderful and then one day you wake up in bed turn around and say who is this stranger that's next to me this, this isn't the this isn't the miraculous being that i i married but at that point it's too late because you produce the next next generation i think that that's how overly pessimistic a, a view about the nature of love i think love is a deep phenomena and like a lot of deep phenomena it discloses and at the same time conceals but there's certainly an aspect of disclosure which is to it and we attend to those we love and those we fall in love with in the way that we don't with other people the, the yes the the imperfections are there out in the, in the open but to you uh, these are imperfections that under certain circumstances you could have as well so it's a bit more like that it's a uh, that you that you truly see the other person in uh in in a more ego-breaking way than would otherwise be the case because so much of the time we're just caught up in uh, in what's really important which is our own lives and uh, and everything is shaped by our, our our experience of our own lives and yet here is this phenomenon of, of love that breaks in and cracks that egocentricity and allows a little bit of light uh, from the outside to get in that was Anthony Milligan, a Scottish philosopher who is currently a senior researcher in the philosophy of ethics at King College London. If you're on the wire for Ram Radio Friday, remember you can text us in 5395 or give us a call on 0930938793. Let us know what you think of all the pieces you've heard so far. We'll be right back after a short break. The French Rumsons love the cock. You're tuned into The Wire.
Magic is afoot at Rangihoa Estate for the ninth instalment of Flamingo Pier Waiheke. A three-day subtropical groove out featuring Harvey Sutherland, Mildlife, Ladyhawk, Frank Booker, Mara TK, Julian Dine, Nice Girl, Nathan Haynes and loads more. 95BFM presents Flamingo Pier Waiheke, March 3rd to the 5th at Rangihoa Estate. For tickets and the full lineup, go to flamingopier.net. Critias, you are wise. Tell me, what is Italo Disco? Surely, Socrates, it is disco-inspired music from Italy. The name proclaims it. But what of Sally Shapiro and her throwback Italo sound? Then, Socrates, it's music which draws inspiration from an idiomatically Italian interpretation of disco with synthesizers and slower tempos. Critias, a problem remains here too. Socrates, it makes you sound like a huge wanker. Embiggen your mind with Plato's Retreat on 95BFM with your hosts, Sam, Chris, Anika and Rob. Four to seven every Saturday, thanks to Hallotau. And I wish some of your dozy mates in the media had got a fix on their job and started being reporters and journalists, not editorialists and analysts, which they're not qualified to do. Uh, prison company accepted, of course. The Wire. Welcome back to The Wire for Ramadi Friday. Our last story stays on the topic of love. Uh, may not be necessarily human soulmates or, as one texter puts here, married at first sight. It's all you really need, potentially, but not if you're a whale. Um, as whale numbers have recovered from near extinction, humpback whales in Australia's east coast may have shifted their mating tactics from singing to fighting with other males in order to win over the ladies. The study looked at data collected between 1997 and 2015, a period in which the population increased from around 3,700 to 27,000 whales. I spoke to Rebecca Dunlop from the University of Queensland on this matter. Yeah, so... They haven't quite given up singing. It's just less of them are singing. And so male whales, they have a few different breeding strategies. One is to sing, and that probably is to attract females. But the risk of singing is that it becomes available to other males. So other males can assess the fitness of the singer, and they can decide whether or not to compete with them. So they're almost giving away their fitness. The second strategy is to not sing, um, so to try and join with females not singing but the problem here is of course you're not displaying yourself to that female but the benefit is is that you have less risk of attracting other males and then the third one is to actually fight but that could be very risky in that you get injured so each male whale has to make its own decision on which strategy to use and it just seems that as the population has increased and there's more and more whales it's probably become a bit more risky to sing, put yourself out there, so they're actually switching to more non-singing and physical competition behaviour. But it's just a natural phenomenon due to that population increase. Does this change the way that researchers do see whale mating behaviour in the future? No, not really. Um, they're just behaving like whales behave anywhere else. So they're using these three different mating strategies. It's just that they're using them in different proportions as time has gone on. And what they're doing is they're sort of adapting to their population conditions. And this probably helped them recover from whaling by, by showing this behavioral flexibility. So when there was few of them, they sang more because obviously that's a great signal to be able to find each other in low-density conditions. And then as the population has increased back to normal numbers, they're probably doing you know, what they should be doing, which is singing a little bit less because it's quite risky. They're still singing, 
it's just that more of them um, are switching to these physical competition behaviors. And of course, the population is also maturing post-whaling as well. So if it's the mature whales that are fighting, and we're seeing more mature whales in the population, that, then that probably explains that change in behaviour. Is it exciting to see whale populations recovering, even though they're deciding to sort of take out their aggression on each other? Yeah, I mean, it's great that the whales have recovered um, post-whaling, and of course all we had to do was not kill them, and they bounced back lovely. Um, and many of the populations are doing that. Not all whale populations are bouncing back, and not all whale populations are back, bouncing back as strongly as the humpbacks. Um, in, in Australia as well, the South Pacific, for example, their humpbacks aren't bouncing back quite as strongly. But for our population, it's a really good way of seeing how large animals recover from decimation and, and monitoring how they do it and how well they do it. And the fact that um, humpbacks are so behaviorally flexible probably led to that recovery. And other animals that aren't so behaviorally flexible and can't adapt to their conditions so well may struggle to recover. That was Rebecca Dunlop from the University of Queensland speaking about humpback whales switching from singing to fighting to win over the ladies. That was The Wire. Ko ere te hōtaka katoa mō tēne wiki, me te mihi ki a koutou katoa, e kōrero mai ki o mou tēne rā, that is a wrap on the wire for Ra Media Friday. Thanks to everyone who spoke with us. Associate Professor Martin Brook from the University of Auckland. Claire Breen, a professor of law at the University of Waikato. Robert Bartholomew from the University of Auckland. Anthony Milligan from King's College London. And also Rebecca Dunlop from the University of Queensland. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to 95BFM. Land of the Groove Groove is up next from 1 to 2. Stay tuned for that. You're on BFM. Kakite. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.